Today's scripture is 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this uh, facility to meet in. We thank you that Pastor Carlson is here to teach us through your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just uh, remove all distraction right now, prepare our hearts and minds to hear and learn from you, Lord, and that we would walk out of here changed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Julian Ruedas. I am one of the community group leaders here at Phoenix Bible Church. If you haven't heard already, uh, Pastor Tim unfortunately can't be here today. This weekend, he is in Texas for the funeral of his late uncle. Please continue to be in prayers for him and his family. I want to take a moment to introduce to you our guest speaker today. Our guest speaker is Jeff Carlson, Executive Pastor Harvest Bible Chapel. Jeff is, has been one of the supporters of Phoenix Bible Church since the beginning, offering his prayers and continued support. He's been a great support to this community all the way up uh, to this point on our journey. Um, Jeff and his wife, Amber, who's here today as well, um, they've been married 13 years and have three beautiful young children, as you can see here in front of the Christmas tree. So please join me in providing a warm PBC welcome to Pastor Jeff. Well, it is good to be here. Thank you for that. That is actually the best family picture we have. Um, we don't do family pictures, and I think now that as our kids are getting older, we might start having to. So uh, it is good to be here. Um, I do wish it was on different circumstances. Uh, Tim has been um, a blessing to our church in the East Valley, Harvest Bible Chapel in the East Valley, and I'm just encouraged that you guys have a small group in the East Valley, and we would love to see that thing grow and be another light in the East Valley. There are so many people in the East Valley who need Jesus, 
and who need to grow in discipleship. And so we're excited about other churches being a part of God's kingdom progress uh, in this city and around the world. And so Tim's been out and has preached for our church. I think uh, Adam Bailey, who's our lead pastor, has been here and has preached. And uh, so I'm thankful for uh, the privilege to be here this morning. Tim called me Thursday morning and said, um, hey, can you preach? We had texted Wednesday night late, and he said, um, can you preach your best sermon ever? And I said, Tim, um, what if I don't have one? And uh, he said, well, then can you go in uh, our series, First uh, Peter chapter 3, or preach whatever you want? And uh, I count it a privilege. I love when I get to uh, jump into a series that a church is already going through and to just continue to study God's word verse by verse. And so now we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3, and you're uh, probably already there. For the last couple of weeks, you've been studying submission, right? And since we're talking submission, um, any UFC fans? Okay, UFC fans. Did we not see a couple submissions last night, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, maybe you didn't, and I wasn't supposed to spoil it. So um, if you've DVR'd that, but uh, submission. And I loved how Tim, just a couple weeks ago, explained that that is not what submission is in God's word, but rather submission is setting aside my authority by coming under authority, to show God as ultimate authority. And so for these last couple weeks, Peter has been writing to specific groups. He's been writing to citizens. He's been writing to servants. He's been writing to husbands, and he's been writing to wives. And today he pulls back from the specific, and now he talks about submission generally. And we know this, we know that this next text is connected because he starts the verse here in chapter 3, verse 8, with finally. So he's ending this study, he's ending this instruction on submission, and he says, finally, all of you. And as we get started this morning, what is crucial for us, and as I studied this these last couple days, what is crucial for me is that I find myself in the all of you. All of you. Now you know because of your study that Peter is writing to followers of Jesus. And so for all followers of Jesus, the following text applies to you. And you may be sitting here this morning and to say, There is actually an exception in here today because I am not a follower of Jesus. I have come in here this morning and I may be a skeptic, I may be a seeker, I may be a a neighbor who was invited and I don't even know what I am, but I know I'm not a Christian. And what I would ask for you this morning is that you would listen and you will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and how the good news of Jesus Christ, how the gospel transforms lives. See, the all of you, so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the all of us, this applies to us because the gospel has transformed our life. It's transformed our lives. See, the Spirit came in and he opened our eyes. He opened our heart. He made us see. He made us see the truth that God is love. He made us see the reality that from the beginning of time, God had a plan. A plan that wasn't fulfilled in Abraham and Isaac and Israel. A plan that was fulfilled in Jesus to gather for him a people. 
a people that he would call his children, that he would adopt the gospel transformed our lives. And when we saw that, and when we saw the good news that Jesus came and that Jesus lived perfectly and that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus ascended into heaven and that Jesus promised that he would give to us the spirit who would live with us and that Jesus will come again and will take us to live and worship him for all of eternity. When we saw that, we did what? We submitted. See, gospel transformation produces gospel submission. We responded. We responded in faith. We believed. We responded in repentance. We looked and we looked at all the things that we were trying to do to earn our own salvation. All the things we were trying to do to earn our own status. And we submitted to the loving sacrifice of Jesus for us. And we declared him to be our savior and we declared him to be our Lord. We submitted. And so gospel transformation produces gospel submission. We, we try to get our kids to submit to our authority. We try to get to our, our employees to submit to our authority. Uh, the way that God has intended for you to submit to his authority is by grabbing a hold of your life with his grace and letting you see his love, which you respond in faith and repentance and submit to him. And so that gospel submission, that is a result of the gospel transformation, which is God's work in your life, produces gospel or results in gospel living. So the, the text here in 3, 8 through 17, so Tim gave me 10 verses, um, which means we'll be here a long time. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It means there's a lot in here about gospel living. Peter here lays out, in fact, um, he lays out, in fact, 15 things. I think we have that slide. 15 things. That what is gospel living? Things that I should do, things that I shouldn't do, things that I need to be doing. I mean, if you were in your devotions this week and, and were looking at this text and just asked the question, how does this apply to my life? You would have jotted down things like this. I need to be unified with others. I mean, it doesn't take a, a seminary degree to find this, does it? I need to be sympathetic. I need to love. I need to have tenderness. I need to be humble. I, I don't do evil to people because they do evil to me. I don't say insults and declare insults to someone because they do it to me. I'm supposed to bless people. I'm supposed to do good to people and on and on and on. So we had two choices this weekend. We can have a 15-point message or we can find a way to frame this text to help us understand it, to grab hold of a few things and then ask God to, to work in our heart and give us greater understanding and so let me pray before we jump in and look at this text. Pray with me. Father, grateful for this opportunity to declare the truth of your word. And I would just ask that you would give clarity. I'd ask that you'd give wisdom. I'd ask that you'd give hearts that want to, that are submissive. Lord, we're here this morning because of the gospel submission. We are receptive this morning because of your transforming work in our life. And so I ask that for that during this time. Would your spirit work? God, use your word. We ask this 
In Jesus' name, amen. We, we never want to be left in the dark. We want to know what to wear when we go to an event. We want to know uh, how to act when we're in a certain context. We want to know directions on how to get there. This past week, we were in the office, we were talking about uh, one of our staff members' grandparents are moving um, from Texas, and they're selling everything, and they're uh, buying an RV, and they're moving out here. I think that story's been told a thousand times for people in Arizona. Buy the RV and move out here. And so we were talking, and it just kind of... Um, Maybe kind of uh, just joking around and re realizing, man, they're just going to grab an atlas. Remember an atlas, kind of a paper map? Whoever used a paper map? Whose parents used a paper map? Yeah, that's more like it. And so you can look at that map and you can try to see which is the, the best route to take. And I love how that's evolved into our, our smartphones or our GPS systems where you can pick the route that you want to take, the best route, no tolls fastest, least amount of miles, those of you who are counting 55 cents a mile. But the cool thing about GPS now is, is while you're going, it actually readjusts for you to take you to the, the best route, the best way. And it's with that type of thinking here, I want, I want in the midst of our life, I want this to kind of be a shock for us to see that, that as we try to understand what is gospel living, that we would look at this text in this light. Here it is. Here's how we're going to frame it. The gospel gives me, so if you're jotting note, gospel gives me, first, a better way. A better way to relate to others. A better way to relate with others. So gospel transformation produces gospel submission, which results in gospel living. So what is gospel living? Well, well first, it's a different way. A better way of relating with others. Are relationships hard? Has anybody had any difficulty with relationships in general? Just raise your hand. Any, any difficulty with relationships? Okay, uh, there's a few people raising their hand. There's probably zero who raised their hand on this next question. Anybody had difficulty in relationships with people in church? Yeah, no, never. No, I think there was more hands on that one than the first one. See, relationships are difficult, and relationships in the church aren't any easier. So how do we relate as gospel-submitted people? How do we relate to people as, as one who has been transformed by the good news of Jesus? Well, there's a natural rate, way to relate. I think it's the opposite of the marks Peter here gives us in verse 8. Because most of the time in our society, relationships are naturally defined what I get out of this, right? I mean, let's be honest. We think of it in this way. I think I'm going to be friends with him because he has. I think I'm going to be friends with him because he knows so-and-so. I'm going to be friends with her because, man, the way she makes me feel. Like, I want a relationship with, with that person because, man, think of what my life would be like. See, in gospel living, shifts from relationships being about me, that what I am concerned about, to what others 
are concerned about. See, a natural reaction with these marks here would be that I'm not concerned about being in agreement with people. I value and hold my own opinion. I'm not sympathetic to your concerns. I have a bunch of concerns of my own. Why are we talking about yours? I'm not, I'm not acting lovingly, and I deserve to be loved. I'm not tenderhearted towards you. You know what I went through this week? I need someone to put their arm around me. I'm not thinking about what you need. I have to think about myself. No one else will. See, but gospel living shows us a better way to relate. It's a relationship that in verse 8 here shows a unity of mind. And the way that the, uh, uh, Peter uh, writes this, he uses a literary technique, uh, um, and I, I, should not try to quote, I should not try to define literary techniques because I'll mispronounce them because I'm not a literary technique person. But it's a chiasm. Is that right, babe? Yes, there's, that's my literary there. Chiasm. So what he does is he takes, you can see this, the first thing in this list, he's got five things. The first thing in the list and the last thing in the list. Unity of mind, humble mind. Those things fit together. Then he's got sympathy and he's got tenderhearted. Those go together. And that technique is designed to put the emphasis at the thing in the middle, which is what? You tell me. Brotherly love. See, love, brotherly love, is the fulcrum on which all other things go. Love. Not just any love. See, the greatest commandment tells us to love God and to love our neighbors. But Peter is getting at here. He's talking to the church. He's asking the church to submit. And he's telling us, church, love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Love. Love because they've been recipients of God's grace just like you have. Love because they have been adopted into God's family like you have. Gospel living is a life of love. See, without love, these other virtues of sympathy and tenderness would be um, not godly virtues, but rather charity to help me feel better about myself. They would be paying it forward to ensure that I get the same treatment later. But brotherly love. Peter gives us these instructions, but Jesus is our example, isn't he? Of the one who loves. So while love is the center of while love is the particular point that's wanting to be highlight, uh, gospel relationships have a unity of mind. It's not division or dissension. I mean, 2 Corinthians, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, agree with one another. Uh, live in peace. So there's a goal as followers of Jesus. There's a submission to, it's not about my opinion. It's not about what I think. It's about unity. Which doesn't mean we just all walk around like, I don't care what you think. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want. But the opposite is division or dissension without love. Whether that's the color of the carpeting that your church picks when you get your own building. 
whether that's what songs you sing as you're picking out the uh, um, order of service. Unity. A humble mind, it's not about me. In Philippians chapter 2, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Sympathy and tender-hearted, moved by the plight of the fellow Christian. Romans chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's a heartfelt compassion for those in our midst, fellow brothers and sisters who are in need, whether it's financial or relational. There's a rooted compassion. There's a rooted compassion and a tenderheartedness. Uh, you, you, if you grew up in the church, you likely memorized Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, right? If you grew up in the church. You may have memorized it in the King James Version. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. And then what does he say? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. See, see your tender-heartedness, your sympathy, your pursuit of unity, your humility, your brotherly love is all connected to the forgiveness and the love that you've received. That's the better way. Better way to relate love for my brothers and sisters that flow out in how I act and how I think towards them. So finally, followers of Jesus, all of us, there's a better way to relate with one another. I don't know where there's divisions in, in this body. I, I live in community and serve in a, in a local church where these things are, are real, where there's a, a battle for unity at times, and there's a battle against pride at times, and there's a, a battle for sympathy. And, and because God in his sovereignty has preserved this text as part of his word, I believe that's probably true here too. And so what relationship generally in this body, what relationship specifically, whether it's a believer in your spouse or your family, is there, is there difficulty that you need the gospel submission, you need a gospel's perspective that I'm going to relate differently, and I'll take Peter's example in chapter 3, verse 8. All right, secondly, the gospel gives me, so first, the gospel gives me a better way to relate. Second, the gospel gives me a better way to react when wronged. The gospel gives me a better way to react when wronged. Reaction. The thing we never want to admit. What's our immediate reaction when things happen? What's your re immediate reaction when you hear something? When you see something? Positive, negative, it's still a reaction. What's the reaction when, you, um, when your favorite athlete wins or loses? So what was your reaction last night in the fight? What was your reaction when, um, I'll tell you my reaction, when Michigan, I'm a Michigan fan uh, from the Midwest, go blue. Um, football, basketball, doesn't matter. Football uh, this year was a, a good year, uh, playing Michigan State. And uh, there's about 11 seconds left. Michigan's up 
four, I get my phone, I start texting. <laughs> Praise the Lord, I only text one person. And all Michigan had to do was punt the ball. And uh, they fumbled that punt, they muffed that punt, and Michigan State took it back and scored a touchdown and won the game with no time left. I'll tell you my immediate reaction. I just sat there. Silence. Devastation. On something so important in life. <laughs> and I'm so thankful I hadn't texted other people. What's your reaction when um, you hear your friend got engaged? And you want to be engaged. What was your reaction when the news of your first child, that you were expecting your first child? What was your reaction when you found out that you were pregnant with your fifth child? <laughs> Guessing they were different. <laughs> Reactions. So what Peter's getting at here is he's wanting us to see that there's a better way to react when things go bad. He wants us to see that when people do evil things to us and when people revile or throw insults at us, he wants us to believe that there's a better way to react to that. But we know what our natural reaction to that is. When an insult is thrown at you, is not, there at times a desire to throw back an insult. This isn't just for the presidential candidates up on stage on a debate. I mean, when someone curses at you, is there not an initial reaction that you just want to give it back to them? You're like, no, we're church people. We don't, we don't think like that. Is there not a desire to see bad things happen to them? When they do evil to us, it must be so. For Peter writes here and instructs us to give us a better way. He says, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. On the contrary, do good. Do good to them, Romans chapter 12 who hate you. Do the opposite of what's evil. That's a gospel living based out of a gospel submission. This is applicable to everyday life. This isn't, um, this isn't just a here and now thing. If you're married, you live closely with another redeemed sinner. If you have children... Whether they know Jesus or not, they're sinners. And there will be times in those relationships often where wrong is done towards you. And when we participate and we are the ones doing wrong towards others. And yet Peter says, do not return that evil to them. But do good. There's a little book uh, that is a... Uh, it's a, it's a great book. Milton Vincent, 
a gospel primer for Christians. Um, if you don't have a copy of this, this is a nice one. I think I bought this in college when I thought like leather books, like having a book that looked nice was important as opposed to there's plenty of paper copies that work just as well. But he writes here. It's just a good book to learning how to see the glories of God's love, preaching that gospel to yourself every day, how the gospel applies to everyday life. And so he'll go, go through things, um, how the gospel affects my daily need, my daily protection. And here in his, uh, page 25, he talks about um, loving others, and he says this, doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when, my, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of his loving forgiveness and generous grace towards me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give this same grace to those who have wronged me. On the contrary, do good. Do good because you're well aware of the good that's been given to you when you didn't deserve it. He says this, for to this you were called. So that's a phrase that you saw earlier in your study in verse 21 of chapter 2. For this you were called. You were called to respond with blessing, to do good. You were called to receive a blessing not based on our performances, as we've already, already said, but because of Jesus' performance. Peter shows us that he uses Psalm 34. You can jot that either on the side of the Bible or in the notes. That's the, um, the next couple verses he's quoting from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, Psalms 34, Psalm 34 is a reminder for us. It's a reminder of hope. That the eyes of the Lord are on his. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. But in this context, it's also a healthy reminder to us that we are only the righteous, not because of what we have done, but because what he has done. He has imputed, he has given to us his righteousness. And so uh, let us not look at this text and, and read that if I don't do, repay evil or if I don't hurl insults and I do good, then I'm going to obtain a blessing and eternal salvation. No, I do that because I have received an eternal salvation, because I have been a recipient of God's grace, and that's what gospel people who are submitted to a gospel transformation in their life do. That's what they do. They do good to those who hate them and revile them and do evil towards them. We bless because we are the righteous in Christ, and that's what the gospel living looks like. So be confident this morning. Your salvation doesn't hinge on your reaction to wrongdoing towards you this week. Your salvation hinges on the fact that Jesus didn't react 
with revenge for us. But we are motivated by that truth to not react and to do good, to bless those who wrong us. The gospel gives us a better way to relate to others, with others. The gospel gives us a better way to react when wrongdoing happens. And then third, the gospel, what is gospel living? And the gospel gives us a better way to respond while suffering. Peter continues, and uh, it may be easy to miss this, but the first word of of chapter 3, verse 13, now, um, isn't a start of a new idea, but it actually connects what just happened in verse 10 through 12. So uh, he says, now, in light of what we just Uh, We're reminded of in the last two verses about Jesus being our Savior and have given us his righteousness. He asks a rhetorical question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who can harm you? So he recounts the good things that that, uh, um, Jesus has done for us, and then he says, who can harm you? This reminds us of Romans chapter 8, right? Move to Romans chapter 8. Just a little to the left in your Bible. Romans chapter 8. One of, um, I think, Christians of all time's favorite chapters. Where where Paul does something similar. So Paul starts this Uh, This chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, just a strong statement that comes after chapter 7 where he's just wrestling with the freedom, um, freedom to do right, but the battle to still do things that are wrong, which he's built on from chapters 5 and 6 where he declares the good news of Jesus and he talks about God reconciling us. And then he continues in chapter 8 with just so many glories of the gospel. And I want to draw our attention uh, to verse 28. And we know that those who, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For, their, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And and in many churches and in many contexts around the nation, I mean, the, the place would go crazy after reading that. Right? Like, the glories of the gospel, that he knew us and chose us and loves us. And then look at verse 31. On top of that, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The obvious answer to the rhetorical question is the same here. And he goes on to some awesome 
uh, verses here talking about no one separating us from the love of Christ. That's the same answer to Peter's question, who can harm us? So settled in who God is and his love for us, settled in that, we ask the question, even in the midst of suffering, who can harm us? And the answer is no. So there's a better way to respond while suffering. He says here in, uh, back in 1 Peter 3, he, he asks that rhetorical question, but then in verse 14 he says, um, I, I can just see that, that church is like, yes, no one can harm us. And then there's a group sitting over there on the left who's like, I, I, you guys can cheer, but I'm in the midst of suffering. Like, I got the wounds to prove it. So Peter writes, even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness, righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Reminds us of Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Just jot down that text, 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the midst of your suffering, Settled in the truth that no one can harm you. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, there's a perspective change here. That's why it's important for Peter to give us a better way to respond while suffering. And so if you're taking notes, I want to jot, jot down three things here as we close. Three things. A new perspective in the midst of suffering. So this week, when you encounter suffering, not for your dumb decisions, not for my dumb decisions, but when we suffer for the gospel's sake, for righteousness' sake, because we love Jesus, because he loved us, and because we're pursuing to live for him, when we suffer like that, here is our perspective. One, we see it as an opportunity for worship. Verse 13 through beginning of verse 15, I already read 13 and 14, it says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, worship isn't just Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Worship is in all circumstances, and worship is when we're in the midst of suffering. And while our initial response is fear, Peter says, have no fear. When we're troubled and not sure what's going to happen, he says, don't be troubling. When we want to give in, when we want to curse God, when we want to complain, we, we worship and we honor Christ. The Lord, who we have submitted to. We see it as an opportunity for worship. We remember what we read in Romans 8. Who God is and what he has done for me can allow me not to only trust him in the midst of that suffering, but to worship him in the midst of that suffering. See it as an opportunity to worship. Second, see it as a platform for gospel proclamation. This is a well-known verse if you've been in a church context. Verse 15, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I love the fact that Peter used the word hope there. In the midst of suffering, settled and trusting in what God has for us, worshiping him, Peter's belief is that hope is at the forefront of our minds and that people will see that hope. And so Paul said, or Peter says, um, be ready. We know that one of our reasons to be alive after we're redeemed people is to share the good news of Jesus, to share of the hope that is within us. And so in the midst of suffering, um, the better way is to use that as a platform. So be ready. Preparation before it's there. Those of you who um, run business meetings or those of you giving speeches or those of you playing sports, you prepare. Because when the clock strikes 10, it's time to go. My daughter's 12 and uh, she just started playing basketball again. She played, I think, one summer um, in an upward league, but she's playing for her school. She's in uh, sixth grade, yes, sixth grade. And she's on the B team, which just means I have to go in and talk to the coach because he made a mistake. She's supposed to be on the A team, says every parent. But last week was her first game, and as I sat there in the fan, and I'm a um, competitive, I play basketball, I love basketball, and I'm sitting there, and I, you can yell as a parent, and I just found myself, like, um, now's the first time I've really found myself what type of parent I'm going to be at sports games. Um, and it just hit me. She's got what she's got. Like, she's as prepared as she can be. Yeah, now the coach can remind her of something, but she's not going to learn anything new at this time to help her do what she needs to do well in this game. Loved ones, when we're in the midst of suffering, that's not the time where we try to go back and learn what it is that we're hoping in. It's not that we, that's the time that we learn how to communicate that hope. See, Peter wants us to use this time of suffering as a platform to defend the, the apologetic, to have well thought out reasoning of why I have hope when logic tells me to be hopeless, when society tells me I'm ridiculous. So be prepared. Be able to answer this question. Just jot this down. Be able to answer this question. Why do I have hope in the midst of this difficulty? Just, just be able to answer that. Work through that. And that, that takes us back to an understanding of who we are. This is the gospel of who we are, what he has done. How we came to know him as our Lord and Savior. What he has for me in this life. All of this, this is why I have hope in the midst of this difficulty, why I don't go from hopeless now to hopeful when things are good, and then when I go down back in the valley, I'm hopeless. No. Know the answer to that question. Don't doubt, don't wonder, don't lose hope. Don't go silent. Don't fight it. Use it as a platform for gospel proclamation. He tells us there real quickly in verse 16 how to do that. This is awesome. Or end of verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
I think that's the last thing we think of gospel proclamation um, in America. Gentleness and respect. We get our bullhorn out, stand on the street corner. We don't. There are people who do. But gentleness. See, when we have a hope in the midst of suffering, we can communicate to those who are causing us to suffer. We can communicate hope to them with gentleness. Why? Because we love them. Why? Because this goes back to Ephesians 4, because we know that we are recipients of God's grace and we're in, we are not doing what they're doing today, not because of who we are, because of what he has done for us. This is what Paul experienced, the one who was murdering people, followers of Jesus, to one who was proclaiming Jesus, was all God's grace. And that allows us to, with the gentleness and respect, communicate of our hope. This love for them. Paul, uh, at the end of chapter 8, goes into chapter 9. And he has a deep sense of concern for those people. I mean, one of the, uh, I'm going to read it real quick. Um, Romans 9, 1, he just came back. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, damned, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. See, a gospel perspective, even in the midst of suffering, a gospel perspective of, of what God has done for me and worshiping him for that takes us to a place of love for someone. And when we're in that place of love for someone, we treat them with a respect and with a gentleness, not with a, um, a damning attitude or condescending attitude. All right, we see it as a gospel platform. And then finally, we see our suffering. We see it as a reminder that God is sovereign. The last verse there, verse 17, there's a phrase, if God wills. If God will. If it's God's will that I'm in suffering, I can have confidence. It can be a reminder. It can be a shockwave to me that God is in control. That he didn't just save me and let me go and went on to save other people. He saved me. He gathered me. He adopted me. He's in control. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign power. He never fails. He's never wrong. He promises to lose no one. And I can rest in that, even in the midst of suffering. God's will for you this week is suffering. Let it be a reminder to you that God loves you. And he's got a will for you. He's got a plan for you. And while it's painful now, rest in. Be confident that all things work together. We read that for good. Though I can't see it now does not mean that he's not in control. This connects to the quote of Psalm 34 in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Yes, even in the midst of suffering. All right, well, the gospel gives us a better way to live. Gospel transformation produces gospel submission. Let's not fight as a submitted people. Let's not fight 
what God's word says gospel living looks like. But let's ask God to give us the grace to see that actually uh, there is a better way. It's his way to relate with others, to react when wrong happens to us, and then to respond when we meet suffering. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're dependent upon it. It is your word that has shown us your love. And the message of the gospel this morning is the same message for the last 2,000 years that God loved us, pursued us, and sent Jesus to die for us. And that God, through his spirit, has worked in our hearts. And so we thank you, God, that you have drawn us to yourself. We thank you that we are your people. We are your sons and daughters. We thank you that you are in control. And while we don't understand everything at all times, we pray that your grace would help us to be a submissive people. Submissive to your way. What you would have for us as gospel people. We need your help. Not a better way for our glory, but a better way for your glory.